It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and today we'll be speaking with Troy, who is a nurse practitioner at an LGBTQ healthcare practice in Seattle, Washington. Normally on this podcast, we interview people living with chronic illness and disability, but every once in a while, I come across something in the healthcare world that I did not know existed, something that I want to share with this audience, and that's what we have for you today. Many guests who've come on this show have discussed how they don't always feel seen and heard by their healthcare practitioners. And that can be especially true for members of the LGBTQIA community. And of course, that stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning, intersex, asexual, and more. This acronym is intended to encompass the spectrum of gender and sexual identities. Many of these individuals face not only stigma and prejudice from the world at large, but oftentimes from their healthcare practitioners as well. Troy summed this up so well uh, during this episode when he said, patients often don't feel comfortable talking to providers if they can't be themselves or present as themselves. And that is one of the primary services that this queer-focused healthcare practice provides. Troy tells us that this is gay providers taking care of the gay community, providing a place for people to feel comfortable, seen, heard, and well-cared for. This was also a fascinating opportunity to discuss the healthcare needs of the LGBTQ community. Some of the things they specialize in are HRT, hormone replacement therapy for transgender patients, and prep care for HIV prevention. Something I was fascinated to learn about was that the companies that make PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis are now marketing to heterosexual individuals because these tools have been so effective in slowing the spread of HIV among the queer community that a large percentage of new HIV infections are actually among heterosexual people. Troy was kind enough to put together a list of resources to assist those in the LGBTQ community who are in need of support. I've listed all these resources in the show notes of this episode, but they include local resources here in Seattle, the LGBTQ Center and the Ingersoll Gender Center, and then national resources for those who are not in this area, the National LGBTWIA Plus Health Education Center, the Fenway Health Institute, the Trevor Project, and the Human Rights Campaign. As I said, all of those links are in the description of this episode. We recognize that many people who may be in need of this type of individualized healthcare service may not be in this area or in an area where something like this is provided. But the hope with doing this podcast is to show you that things like this exist. If you've never considered looking for something like this in your area, why not check it out? And another purpose of doing this podcast is to educate everyone who's not a part of this community to give you a sense of other people's needs and how sometimes they aren't met in the traditional medical establishment. Because this show is all about spreading awareness and empathy. It's a great conversation. I'm so grateful for Troy to come on the show, and we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. We got a very touching new review on Apple Podcasts that I have to share with you. This is from Sue, and it's called Please Continue. I love your show, and I would more than miss it. Knowing you're not the only one going through these problems is so helpful. Jesse, you mean so much to us all. Thanks, from Sue. Uh, That really got me in the feels when I read that. (laughs) So, Sue, thank you so much for leaving that review on Apple Podcasts. Leaving us positive ratings and reviews is an amazing way to support the show, help us to reach new listeners, and also it is the fuel that keeps me going to get this type of feedback. So, it's really, really great to hear this. Thank you so much, Sue. 
I'm also always keeping an eye on our comments on social media, and we have a comment from Instagram that I really wanted to share. This comment is from Danny Cap from a couple weeks ago with our episode with Courtney discussing her undiagnosed illness. This was an amazing podcast, and I am not just saying that because I am her sister. <laughs> this interview went so well. You guys definitely vibed, and this felt very real and kind. I like how you were able to make these very important topics of the problems with healthcare and the insurance industry really affect the care we get. Healthcare compartmentalizing everything to the point where help is hard to find, i.e. hot potato, with no one able to commit to finding the answer. And insurance expenses and withholding coverage should not be part of the struggle. But it very much is. I am also confident Courtney will find the cause and will be able to get a treatment that will help get her back to the life she deserves. She is a vibrant, brilliant, dedicated, amazing human. Thank you. Thank you so much, Danny Cap, Courtney's sister, for that amazing comment. This was left on the Instagram reel with a clip of Courtney talking about being a hot potato patient. I love getting feedback like this on our episodes. You can always reach out at majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can leave a comment on any of our social media platforms. We are at Major Pain Podcast on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, and at Major Pain Pod on Twitter. You can also leave a comment on any episode on our website, majorpainpodcast.com. If you are enjoying this podcast and you would like to help support it financially, one of the best ways to do so is through Patreon. Patreon is a fantastic platform that allows our listeners to support the creation of this podcast directly through monthly financial contributions. We have three subscription tiers, our $2 per month supporters, $7 per month patrons, and $25 per month producers. Each tier comes with different levels of recognition and support, and everyone gains access to our monthly bonus episodes with myself and Andy, and we are recording one of those this week since it is the beginning of May. So if you are already a part of our Patreon community, keep your eyes peeled for that. If you have anything you'd like us to discuss in our new bonus episode, you can always reach out and let me know, either uh, through Patreon by leaving a comment on last month's bonus episode, or by just shooting me an email, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. Extra special thank you to our Patreon producers supporting this show at the highest tier of $25 per month. Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Every single person who's supporting us on Patreon is going a huge way towards supporting the continued creation of this show, and it is deeply appreciated. You can learn more on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. You can also support this show by signing up to participate through research studies and surveys through Rare Patient Voice. We actually had a new person sign up this week, which I very much appreciate. If you are interested in sharing your expertise about living with your diagnosis, diagnosis of any kind, and getting paid for your time, then sign up using our link, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast. Every time someone signs up using that link, you are sending a $10 tip to this podcast. And then if you participate in a research study or survey, you can earn an average of $120 per hour for your time. That link is rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast. And all of these links are always listed in the show notes of every episode. I have the next five interviews for this podcast already recorded, and they are amazing. We have some really great stuff coming up on this podcast. So make sure you are subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform you listen on. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all sorts of different podcast platforms. You can learn all the ways to subscribe to our show at our website, majorpainpodcast.com slash subscribe. And the last thing I'll share with you before we jump into our conversation with Troy is that this podcast is not intended as medical advice. 
Although our guest this week is a medical professional, Troy's opinions are his own and nothing he shares with us today is intended as medical advice. Do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our fantastic conversation with Troy about working at an LGBTQ clinic here in Seattle. Troy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jackie. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to chat with you today. This is going to be a little bit different than our normal show, but from the little we've talked about this subject, I can tell that this is going to be a really important thing to talk about and a great platform to share this information on. So really excited to get into it. But before we do, let's get to know you a little bit. So Troy, tell us about yourself. Yeah, so my name is Troy Flaherty. I'm a nurse practitioner uh, here in Seattle, Washington. I've been working in a small primary care office um, or practice here um, specifically for LGBT health. And yeah, I it's kind of fascinating. I do that kind of my work life, but then my personal life is spending time kind of out in the mountains. I grew up in Oregon. I spend, I spend a lot of time on the Oregon coast. I go motorcycle riding because I don't own a car. I just own a motorcycle with my husband and we kind of ride all over the Northwest most of the time. But um, so we kind of try to balance things out between work and play, um, go to lots of musical shows and those types of things. So when you're working in healthcare, you need to make sure that, you know, your life is also balanced because if you're not doing well or taking care of you, you can't really take care of others. So yeah, that's, that's a great that's point. kind of me. Yeah. A little balance from time to time. <laughs> I didn't know you were a motorcyclist. When did you get into that? About 10 years ago, actually. My grandparents rode motorcycles. My dad still rides a motorcycle. And then who kind of inspired me to kind of get into it. I had taken a class, had a scooter here in Seattle for a long time. Uh, it was not a Vespa because I couldn't afford one, but it looked like one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, yeah, we, my husband really wanted to get into it as well. And so we both started taking a class and putting around Capitol Hill was quite the adventure on an old bike back then. So <laughs> yeah, I've never actually been on a motorcycle. I, I love to ride bikes. And uh, back before my big health flare up, I was that was my primary form of transportation was biking around and I'm trying to get back into that now that I'm doing better. It's very exciting. That's great, right? I mean, uh, I think it's important to have some type of physical activity that you're passionate about, right? Or something that you enjoy. And if you can enjoy it still, depending on where people are in their lives. So um, yeah, Totally. Yeah. Although I've learned that you can, you know, you can find that in places you wouldn't expect when you aren't, when I wasn't doing as well, my form of exercise became using a wheelchair, just going out uh, when my legs weren't working and just like riding around the neighborhood in a wheelchair. And it was awesome, you know, and something I never would have expected falling in love with. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing where things can change and morph. I mean, I growing up didn't think I'd ever ride a motorcycle. I was absolutely petrified. Uh, even being on my, the back of my dad's motorcycle, I would just hold on and think like I could never do this. And when he would take a corner, I was always very confused. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm riding on my own and have for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles all over the, all over the country. So it's yeah, kind of fascinating. Wow. It must be a cool way to see the, see the landscape. Yeah, it is. When I first started, I, I was too nervous still when my husband was riding and I rode on the back of his bike and I had an old Canon camera that I used to stick to the top of my helmet and click photos. And we joked because they were always blurry. <laughs> <laughs> and so we always called them photos from the back seat. And 
anyways, yeah, that's kind of how things started when we started to travel together on the bike and do a lot of motorcycle camping and that kind of stuff in the Northwest. And now we just each have our own bikes and still do those things. So wow, very cool. Yeah. Well, you and I met in a really funny way. Um, <laughs> so my my partner Andy's sister Allie was on a trip with her partner Aislin through Europe, and you know they went on this big adventure. And they started a Marco Polo group for their friends. <laughs> Marco, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Marco Polo, for people who aren't familiar, is like a, a video messaging app where you can just send video messages back and forth. So they put a big group together of their friends that they wanted to update on their trip. Um, and we would all watch their trip and then kind of respond. And you were a part of that group. I had never met you before. Um, but I yeah, watched yeah. you on Marco Polo responding to this trip a lot. <laughs> and then when they got home, they had a dinner party. And it was like... Very interesting to meet someone in person that I had been watching videos of. <laughs> it was like you were a celebrity or something. Yeah. I, you know, now that you say that, it's funny. I don't know if I've met anyone else that that route before. Oh, yeah. Me neither, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> um, but what a great way they did to share their, their journey and experience and then to bring us all together for that that party about the food that they've tried or learned and that's right yeah it was great to meet you actively in person as well <laughs> yeah totally and we got to chatting a little bit and you told me about your work and i was immediately interested in talking to you about it on the podcast because it sounds like you know something that's very relevant to this community and whenever i hear of a public service that is relevant to this community i reach out and say hey come on the podcast and let's let's share what you do and so that's what we're going to do today I'm really excited about it. So, Troy, tell us a little bit about your work. Yeah, like I was saying, I'm a nurse practitioner, so I'm a provider. I'm one of um, five of us now. Um, it started out back in 2013 as a, an LGBT practice, and there was only um, two providers and three sort of in the first year. Um, one of our providers, they had done a basically a, a rotation down in San Francisco, at, um, a queer facility, and recognized a really big need in Seattle, which was their hometown. So they linked with another LGBT provider and um, opened up the practice called Capitol Hill Medical here in Seattle. And ever since then, we kind of um, talk about basically being gay, queer parts. We're obviously gay providers taking care of the gay community, if you will. And which is pretty rare, frankly, you don't find that everywhere. And, you know, we specialize from, you know, HRT stuff for our transgender patients. We also specialize in prep care, HIV care, chronic diseases, those types of things. And it's not that we don't see allies and heterosexual individuals by any means. Uh, we just um, want to provide a space for people to come and feel comfortable and able to talk to their providers and who they can relate to. So, um, yeah, it's been a really fascinating experience. It's not where I started out in healthcare, but it's where I've wanted to go in healthcare for a very long time. And about three years ago, the practice asked me to come over um, and join, which was great news. I had known these providers for a long, long time from conferences and trainings and just being part of the community myself. Um, at one time, I was an actual patient there before I became a provider. Oh, really? <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm a former um, doc who was there or nurse practitioner who was there. It was my actual provider that I saw. Um, for primary care, which was great in prep care. Wow. And so, yeah, but a couple of years ago, I joined the practice and I created my own panel and I've kind of blended a few things from my background, which has been kind of a, a long journey over the last, I was thinking about this this morning is I've actually been working in healthcare for 
22 years. Wow. <laughs> Which is odd to me being in my late 30s. <laughs> yeah, you got an early start. <laughs> I got a very early start. And um, so, yeah, the, the practice is really fascinating. We all kind of have our own sort of niches, like you would any type of provider based on training and education and those types of things. Um, but we, yeah, it's a beautiful place to provide a very welcoming environment. And it's always something I feel joyful about when patients come from other cities, countries, uh, just even within Seattle and things where they finally go, oh my gosh, I can talk to you about anything. <laughs> mm. And it's a really positive place for me because that's something I'm very passionate about, especially in nursing is to, you know, listen to your patients, um, give them the space they deserve and need. And you don't get that sometimes in large organizations because they're very much about, you need to see somebody in, frankly, in 10 minutes. That's how fast you get to see a, a person, a number, if you will. And our practice is very different. Most of our appointments are 30 minutes to an hour. And so we build this rapport wow. with them where wow. you are listened to and heard. And, you know, it's a, it's a big piece of the puzzle, I think, in healthcare that's lacking in a variety of places. So, you know, we don't look at our patients as a number. We look at you as an individual and figure out what it is that you need that moment, that day, that year, whatever it might be. So it's a cool place. That's so cool. And yeah, just talking about the 10 minute patient model, you know, making appointments of 30 to 60 minutes with your patients. That is phenomenal. That alone is such a big deal, especially for people with chronic illnesses or, you know, any, any serious health challenges where you need constant management for it. <laughs> I just know what it's like to try to go in and have this laundry list of questions. I take notes on my phone, go in, and it's like, okay, I got to talk about these things. And you get out of the appointment, it's like, wow, I missed like three or four of these because we were so rushed. Oh, absolutely. I worked at a, a large institution here in Seattle for, actually, it's where I started my most of my career here when I moved up here. And great place to work, absolutely fantastic as a, as a nurse and then as an actual um, provider things started getting pushed where they, they really wanted you to see people in 15 minutes. And then they were starting to push people into 10 minute slots. And the concept was, is that your um, productivity, which they monitor through some, you know, it algorithm things stuff way beyond my understanding, frankly, being in healthcare. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's when I recognized that I could not give adequate care to patients. Well, I said it was too fast and not enough time to really discuss much of anything, frankly, or give the patient an opportunity to express what they're going through or what they need or their symptoms and those types of things. And so it was um, when the Capitol Hill Medical had offered me this position, it was one of the big reasons I joined was that I could set the times of my patients and not consider it as a and consider it more of a service, if you will, and provide better care, frankly. Yeah. Wow. I mean, thinking about healthcare as a business versus a service it's kind of chilling, you know, as a patient, it's your health. You only have one body and it's like, you got to take care of it. And if you have a serious challenge that's put a, a wrench in that, then like you really need to sit down with someone who's going to listen to you and take the time that it takes. This isn't Starbucks. Like we don't need to make the fastest lattes possible. Like this is people's oh, absolutely. health. Yeah. You know, and it was, it's that's kind of how it felt was just more of a numbers issue and we weren't pushing hard enough. We weren't working hard enough. And when I looked at my productivity numbers, I was working basically two individual jobs at the same time. So I was seeing so many people so fast. And I was working in a specialty clinic at the time um, and actually in weight management, 
something I now do in my own practice. Mm. And, um, but yeah, I just recognized that this is not how I want to continue my career, my practice. And it was the moment I said, okay, I've got to think outside the box and how can I do that? And there's a lot of other practices and clinics that people can go to. And I had specialized in, in my grad school with to push for LGBT health. So I did a rotation at like the Madison clinic to learn more about HIV care and how um, that is a better, you know, an amazing clinic over at UW Harborview and then rotations over at like Bailey Boucher for chronic diseases with um, older adults and those types of things. And um, there was, there's not a program that says, Hey, if you want to specialize in these types of things, follow this track. Like some people who want to go to cardiology, you go to these things. If you want to go to dermatology, you follow these pieces. There's not a LGBT track in education. And it was something I pushed very adamantly with my um, advisors to make sure that those happened and kind of paved a way for others years later that are kind of going down the same path because we know that there's nuances like HRT and PrEP and HIV care or STI screenings and all these things that um, happen um, maybe not more frequently, but need, need to be able to be discussed in a way that's appropriate to their, you know, lifestyles and everything that's happening. And so we want people to feel comfortable. Yeah, and I'm very interested in talking a little bit about the the specific needs. You know, the, there there are specific needs for you know the LGBTQIA plus community that oftentimes are not met in standard medical care. And I I've heard you know in recording this podcast, I've had several people tell me a few things that have really stuck out to me. You know, people saying like my doctor refused to acknowledge my preferred pronouns. And things that are degrading to someone who, you know, has a identity that they have learned about themselves that they are sharing with their doctor who should be a trusted person to be able to share that information with and being met with pushback and then feeling like they can't trust their doctor. Um, you know, there, Absolutely. there is like social stigmatization around some things that shouldn't be stigmatized. People should absolutely be, you know, be able to love who they love and that shouldn't be a social political issue, but sometimes it becomes one because of somebody's prejudice. So I'm, I'm curious to hear from you about, you know, what, what are the needs that you see in the community that this practice is filling? Yeah, you, you make some valid points. One, you know, one of them being about um, pronouns, preferred names is another very big one. Um, it's something that um, even just on, so for instance, like our intake form for a new patient, that is something we ask right away. What, what are your pronouns? We have a way in our, in our, you know, the electronic health record that we use to document that. So we use that. We can change it when people sometimes change their pronouns. They change their preferred names. Their legal name might change. Um, their sexual orientation might change. Their gender might change. Like, you want to be able to know when and how that's happening. And just we put it out there. And it, um, so on our intake forms and all of our documentation, we ask patients pretty much anytime they're coming in if any of that's changed. And that's a big space for people to say, wow, like, I've never been asked that before, or I've never had a provider who actually cared to know those that information. And that's something I find very specific in sort of, you know, the LGBT um, sort of spectrum or health with our patients that they need to be able to feel that, that welcoming environment um, to like you said, to be able to feel trusted to their provider or be able to trust their provider, frankly. Um, so that's something we're really passionate about. In fact, we have our, um, like our billing department as trained in all of that, because 
who knew if you had to call your biller, right? If you have a billing question, we also want to make sure that they're using the right pronouns, preferred names, those types of pieces. So we train sort of outside organizations or companies we have to utilize in a small practice because we can't handle things like our own billing in an office. It's very complicated <laughs> dealing with insurance companies. So um, those, those are some little sort of nuances that I think anyone could practice, though, at every organization sure. across every country, frankly. Because I know some of like Seattle's moving forward in that, like Swedish has now created what's called their SOGI form. And that's um, a way to document to make sure that they're not misgendering or misidentifying individuals. But it's also important to know what, you know, if somebody's had, for instance, you know, top surgery or like a bilateral bisectomy during their transition, you're not going to want to talk to them about that, like they're, when their mammograms do those types of things, because it's not necessary. So there's little nuances that, really come into play and we also ask people about you know how they would like their like genitals to be called because i think that's in a big piece as well and um you know where people are and how we meet them is really important because people should be validated and feel comfortable when they're coming in into any practice but that's some of the few things that we do day in and day out and um i i've thought about what would happen if i ever go back to a larger institution and i think how bizarre that feels to me not to be able to ask my patients those questions. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So um, we're fortunate where we are being in private practice because we can implement things very quickly. Um, but that was something the practice did uh, 13 years ago. They started those types of things. And we've just, with the pandemic, changed some of it from physical forms to electronic and things you can do at home before you come in and sit in a waiting room and those types of things. So um, we're, we're really fortunate that we can do those types of pieces. And, you know, there's other things that I think to think about with sort of LGBT health is really uh, like HRT care for trans patients, because there's a lot of providers who don't know that information, don't know, have the knowledge of what that is and what to tell patients or how to navigate that. Yeah. HRT being hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. So when you're starting either estrogen or, or testosterone or some other things, there's ways that we want to make sure patients understand like, you know, you know, risk, benefit, permanent changes, those things, but we do it as an informed consent model. We are not there to be roadblocks to our patient, which is a lot of, um, kind of frankly, a lot of horror stories we hear is that my provider said, no, I can't start these things, or I don't know those things. So they can come to us and we can manage that for them and, and help them guide them through the process. And it's pretty fascinating, frankly. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is a serious change to the body and deserves care that is knowledgeable about what the process might entail yeah because there's a lot of it there's a lot of interesting information online that all of our patients will read i mean that's just how the, how the world exists now webmd is a big thing and as much as providers we don't appreciate webmd sometimes it's great for people to have some type of knowledge about what they are going through and um, we're fortunate in Seattle to have a lot of support groups for the LGBT community and many resources like the Ingersoll Gender Center and things like that. So we're, we're, we're lucky in this area, but I think across the country, the more and more of that should be happening, whether it's LGBT health or just general care, is to provide services to people where they can feel comfortable to talk about their problems, their issues, their symptoms, whether it's physical or mental health, either way, right? So. That's something I think healthcare needs to be more adamant about over time. Yeah, totally. There's some uh, transgender content creators that I follow, and they all post about the death threats that they get. 
and the fact that like so many people in the world just want them to not exist. And I can't imagine the mental health toll that that must take. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's been a lot even in this country about trans rights and those types of things and providers offering care and how that looks and how um, they're being impacted. And and it's not that our practice is just for trans patients. We, ha- we help patients from all spectrums of life and that type of stuff. And I think that's what also is important. Like, yes, we're LGBT providers. Yes, we specialize in some of these things to help our patients through all aspects of life, not just their hormone therapy, but also their blood pressure, their diabetes, all sorts of things. And so it's hard when we watch patients, specifically like trans patients get sort of the the threat and the lack of care, if you will, in other areas. So we're grateful to be able to provide some of those services. As, as a small practice, we can't provide everything. You know, we can't do imaging and x-rays. We just we don't have those types of services that large practices do. But we know where to refer our patients or how to order those and send them over to go get an x-ray, those types of things. So it's a little different as a small private practice. and But we're fortunate to have that and be able to know those things and how to help our patients get that care. It's so interesting to think about, you know, in some parts of the country, trans individuals are fighting for their right to exist. The difference between that and and actually getting good, competent medical care, the gulf must be massive. You know, that's something where, like, my heart goes out to if you're in that situation. Right. So, I think it's really special that you and your colleagues are creating that space. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's we're really pleased with the um, things we can do for people. And we kind of acknowledge our limitations as well, not just as um, providers, but being in the community, uh, where things are going all over this country and the world and those types of things, we recognize some of those and we want to be positive and sort of shine and be sort of that one of a few beacons within the area that says, you know, feel free to reach out. And, you know, at the moment we can't, we're, you know, pretty busy and very full as, as how many patients we're taking. And we recognize that, but we always reopen a new patients and that's something that I find like can be really difficult is sometimes that these large institutions, they, they can't see a lot of people. They see a lot of people, but not very effectively. I'll put it that way. You've mentioned uh, PrEP. And I think that this is an interesting thing to talk about because, you know, since the HIV crisis, I guess you could say in the 80s, there's been huge advancements in care um, and prevention around HIV. And I think there's still a lot of um, stigma around this topic when, you know, the science and the actual reality has changed significantly. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that from you. Yeah, it's it's a it's a large piece of the puzzle for us. Um, a lot of um, providers um, can can manage some HIV care very well. But we kind of try to um, we educate ourselves more and more. We're part of um, certain organizations and groups that meet meet actually weekly um, up to keep up to date on so many of the changes and things that are occurring. And whether it's um, pre exposure prophylaxis or prep. Um, which um, is basically a daily pill that that people take to prevent them from getting HIV. And the long-term studies have shown it's 99.9% effective. It's really, really impressive about how people, if taken daily, can get protected from HIV. And then there's been many advancements in, you know, medications and types of things with HIV specifically. And so, you know, we no longer think of HIV as sort of that death sentence that we used to see, especially, you know, in the 80s and 90s and things, where because we've got better care and knowledge and medications um, that exist that are fortunately for the majority of individuals covered by insurance or Medicaid and Medicare, those types of things. So 
um, in Washington State alone, we have a, a prep program. So if somebody cannot afford prep care, they can sign up for that um, through the Department of Health. It's really fascinating. Um, not every state a lot does that. So there's been a big incentive nationally to provide those services and things will change over time, which is great. It's not quite there yet, but it is a good place to be because we have options. And then there's now new injectables that have existed. And many, many of my patients are bring, coming in talking about a drug called Apertude, which is a every other month injectable prep. So preventing again from HIV. Um, and that's just new on the market and that type of stuff. So there's things that are coming out there to make things different and there's you know the the hiv vaccine trials are moving forward really well and uh, even moderna throwing their hat in the ring for that as well and they're doing really great in their study that's happening so it's it's the, the stigma part is really definitely there for sure and it's it's unfortunate and i think that's one big piece with a lot of the lgbt community is the the stigma and um discrimination that we we endure and why we come together so often to, you know, be present in moments and push our our rights, our knowledge, our love for one another, those types of things out there and providing just what I find is feels simple to me, might not be simple to other providers for prep care is quite easy. Tell someone to take a medication, make sure they're HIV negative with a blood draw. It's sort of short and sweet, if you will, to us, but it feels more complex to other providers because of that stigma, maybe lack of knowledge, the uncomfortability they might be feeling about that. Um, but, you know, we want to meet people where they're at. We, of course, want people to do safe sex practices and things, but why not offer them a medication that can give them full protection? Absolutely. And even with safe sex practices, there's always instances where you don't know what's going to happen next. You know, you can never predict the future. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So why not take precaution when you can? Yeah, right. It's a big piece about, you know, preventative medicine, which is what we try to tell everybody. Why do you come for an annual physical? It's preventative medicine. Why do you take a vaccine? It's preventative. It's the same thing with PrEP. <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting to think about where where the stigmas in our society lie. Why why do they exist the ways that they exist? And what which of them are we ready to move beyond as a society because they are not serving us? I, I, yeah, I completely agree. And there's, you know, one of the things I really appreciate is, especially coming from like certain organizations in this country, is things like the um, sort of prep marketing campaigns about just educating people to reduce that stigmatization. And, and that is a big push. And we're now seeing things even more so for prep to now um, not just be marketed to individuals in the LGBT community because. One, our numbers are so low from HIV transmissions. It's actually lower than our heterosexual counterparts. Really? And this is the first year I've ever seen them market it towards heterosexual individuals. And I've had, um, uh, I had a woman come in and she says, you know, I've never actually thought about this. And I said, yeah, I don't, why, why are you not on PrEP? If you're sexually active, why not? <laughs> yeah. So wow. it was a really eye opener for me as a provider to also be like, oh yeah, I, not just my LGBT patients I need to be talking to about this. It's everyone. <laughs> wow, that is fascinating. What are the side effects of, of PrEP? Um, typically none. In the first couple of days, you'll have a little bit of um, nausea, sometimes some GI issues, like um, some, just like loose stools, if you will. But most patients, there's no side effects. There's Truvada, which has long-term, um, and studies have shown long-term effects for potential kidney issues and osteoporosis or bone density loss. 
Um, and so we monitor those types of things. And then there's the second medication that most people can also use called Discovy, um, which doesn't have those sort of side effects long-term. Um, and we keep an eye on those with our patients and there's reasons for one versus the other. Sometimes there's insurance things that happen, sometimes not. Um, if patients are taking other medications that we have to be mindful of that may also be affecting kidneys, we want to be mindful of that as well. So it's stuff that we as providers, when talking to our patients about PrEP or which ones to use, since there are multiple on the market now, is uh, making sure we're keeping those things in mind. And um, But yeah, most of my patients take one every day and feel great. It's um, kind of like taking a multivitamin every day. Yeah. And, you know, if you are someone who was dating and searching for a monogamous relationship, when you're in a monogamous relationship, you don't need it, you know, if, if you trust your partner, <laughs> which is complicated. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And, and I have, you know, there's always the patients that say, well, what do you think? And I said, well, it's, it's truly your decision. I can tell you that if I'm not 100% certain, I'm going to stay on it. And yeah. if I'm, if I think maybe things might open up here or there, or there, this opportunity might come to fruition or whatever, I'm just going to stay on it for safety in my own, in my own peace of mind, if you will. Absolutely. Because the risk of side effects and things like that are just so low that why not go for it? <laughs> yeah, and this is an interesting topic, you know, this idea of preventative care, side effects versus the uh the ramifications of you know contracting yeah hiv or uh, thinking about you know vaccination you know covid vaccination obviously comes to mind this idea of like are there any long-term risks to the vaccine versus the fact that we know that there are a absolute boatload of long-term effects potential uh with covid itself so yeah it's a it's a difficult um thing to talk about this idea of like i'm going to take something that is potentially risky to prevent a much greater risk. You know, I think that a lot of people struggle with that, um, like running those calculations with their own body. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's another reason we are very adamant about the informed, sort of informed consent model, which is basically giving your patients the knowledge to make that decision for themselves and to do that with what current information exists, basically. So it's one reason as we as providers, we are always doing things like continuing education or going to conferences for those things. Uh, learning more about pharmaceuticals and those types of things. So when we talk to our patients about PrEP, it's yes, definitely about, you know, side effects, risk versus benefit, those long-term things I've mentioned, but also that, you know, like I said before, is that HIV is not a death sentence, but it is very harsh on the body and the organs long-term and the medications that are exist are fantastic compared to what we used to have, but there's also long-term effects from those as well. And so um, there are certain medications you can't take with those other HIV medications as well. There's some nuances there. And so, you know, those are a much larger risk than, in, in my opinion, than taking one pill once a day. Yeah, so, totally. Yeah. And, and there's a lot more to that, that, that we try to spend time with our patients at their sort of initial starting or restarting prep, whatever it might be. And things are going to keep changing, you know, like I mentioned, and, and we just try to stay as up to date as we possibly can. I remember watching a show, I think it's called Designated Survivor, which season one was great. Kiefer Sutherland is the president um, <laughs> when the whole, you know, Congress is destroyed by a terrorist attack. Uh, and then it definitely got less interesting over time. But I do remember there was a character in season three who um, was HIV positive and uh, was untraceable, undetectable. Yeah with a partner and talking about like talking through the options, talking about prep. And um, 
I'd never seen that on TV before. I'd never seen characters talking about that before. And I found it to be extremely um, valuable to get that information, you know, in a casual way while watching something about something completely different. So I do hope that there will be um, more examples of that representation in the future. You know, you mentioned talking about prep commercials, like trying to educate the, yeah. the heterosexual world. It's like, hey, this is an option for you. Um, and the, the fact that HIV is now more common uh, in the heterosexual world than the homosexual world is very surprising. You know, that's a, a testament to a community working at something together. Yeah, I mean, it's taken a lot of time, right? A lot of hard work, it's, uh, especially sort of the grassroots approach. And I mean, if, if any, if we can, if we think about anything recent, more recent, it's the monkeypox outbreak that's occurred and mm. how that came out as a sort of a vengeance, if you will, in May, in May of this last year. And the vaccine came out marketed basically to very, very adamantly towards the LGBT community. And what did we do? We jumped on it. Everybody got vaccinated and the numbers plummeted and we we're no longer having this outbreak. And the government didn't extend the emergency use after January. I mean, we have almost zero cases in King County alone now. And it is to the testament of our community acknowledging that we need to just like with PrEP and prevent HIV, we also want to prevent the outspread of monkeypox or COVID or whatever it might be. So um, it's a really unique sort of environment to watch the data of that in the last year. And I think it really shows just how these things can improve and prevent worse outcomes. So, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, be because the it's one of those situations where like, stigma versus reality might not line up. And educating yourself about the reality is very important. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, the stigma of, the of, uh, you know, for monkeypox to be an LGBT issue was really uh, difficult for a, a difficult pill for a lot of us to swallow, if you will, because it wasn't just affecting the yeah. LGBT community, it was affecting everyone. Yeah. It was just the way it was um, announced to the world, right, to the community and public health. It was um disheartening at the time and and still difficult frankly for us to recognize as a community that that was how it, how it was presented and but we many of us were like you know what we will get vaccinated we we don't want to be at risk we don't want to put others at risk so um because it was a unique um um situation at the time well it's still a unique situation now but just not as a um sort of high alert, if you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I hadn't heard anyone talk about monkeypox in a while, which is a testament to what you're saying. <laughs> all of, all of, yeah, all of my patients have been coming in over the last two months or so have said the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, I haven't heard about it. I was like, well, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you know how much work it takes to not hear about it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's something in our practice, you know, we're, we're constantly monitoring those things when we need to start administering vaccines because we're basically like a public health clinic at the same time. So we we administer certain vaccines. We got um, the, you know, monkeypox vaccine um, in stock into our practice, those types of things, which not everybody does. Um, but we knew we wanted to be part of the solution within our community. And, and so we'd offer that to our patients. And um, there's a lot more work involved in those little scenarios and situations, but it's with, it has been worth it. To us. And same with our community, everyone's been protected. So it's been great to see. Yeah. You mentioned that your background is in weight management. I'm curious, uh, in a, speaking about stigmatization, there's so much fat phobia <laughs> in our 
society. So how do you approach weight management? Yeah, my, so when I, when I was a nurse, um, in my early part of my career, bariatric surgery started to come on the floor. I was a med surge nurse, um, at a local hospital and bariatric surgery was brand new at the time. Gastric bypass had barely been out, but the gastric sleeve had just come out, um, that year and was just starting to get done and those types of things. So I was really interested in the, and sort of the surgical side at first is what kind of sparked this. And then um, after grad school and becoming a nurse practitioner, I actually got a job offer at a a weight management practice at a local hospital. And so I, and it was, it was not because I thought I wanted to go into weight loss and talk to people about nutrition and physical activity and these things. It was because I wanted to manage chronic diseases actually. And it was part of my background is um, working with older adults in geriatric care, which typically has multiple chronic diseases multiple meds xyz i'm very passionate about that which i still do in my practice now but i thought of it as an opportunity to learn and since i had a little bit of background to do both this surgical and non-surgical side i jumped at the opportunity and and learned a lot frankly in that role over about three years which was more about not what most people think is you know, eat better and go work out, which is not the key to success to anything, frankly. (laughs) And we, it was great to watch, which this is going to be the next sort of big turn is that obesity medicine uh, and weight loss is turning into the chronic disease management and their, you know, insurance and and these people are finally recognizing it. We're getting new medications on the market, that kind of stuff, because it's not just about what you eat. There's, there's hormones, there's genetics, there's, uh, sleep can change things. I mean, there's literally multitudes of pieces when we think about whether weight goes up or weight comes down and those types of things. And um, what was great in that practice is we were, I learned just like I do in nursing is to treat the patient as a, one, as an individual, but two, is more sort of this holistic piece. So we think about all those moving pieces and ways that we, either we can improve them or sometimes there people just need to get that education again. And it was something I ended up bringing into my own practice. And so I offer basically a lot of education to patients about what are some things that are obviously nutritional that are healthier for the body and why we need certain types of foods. And we talk a lot about, you know, not just physical activity, but as this, what sort of sleep, what are the comorbidities that are causing issues, what other medications might be causing weight gain or weight loss. And so um, it's been a really a great experience because of that phobia is so intense because most providers have 10 seconds to tell your patient, great, I see you're a little overweight today. Have you thought about eating better? And have you thought about exercise? Which is me, the most disheartening thing anyone should tell somebody else Mm. about their weight. It shouldn't matter what your weight is. It should matter whether or not like, you know, is your diabetes out of control? Well, if we improve certain pieces there, yeah, maybe you'll get weight loss, but your diabetes is going to get better or your blood pressure or your mental health or your sleep. Those are the things I find more motivating to individuals and how you can discuss that with your patient, not just say, this is your weight and your BMI and XYZ, but how they are as an individual in a whole, in a whole about other comorbidities that can be impacted worse or better based on, on sort of weight or, or sort of excess fat, fat mass, if you will. It seems to me that our societal standards for what is, you know, overweight is completely out of whack. And that some people's bodies are naturally larger and they are healthy and they exercise and they feel great, but society still deems them to be 
overweight for some reason. I mean, is that is that just my imagination or is that what's happening? No, you're spot on. This all comes back to the um to the BMI. And I don't know if you um so the BMI is called the body mass index, which is a calculation based literally on height and weight. That's it. Um and it was created, I, I believe it was this in the 16th century or 19th century. Basically it was a long, 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 long time ago. <laughs> One individual took a group of I think it was 45 men and created this number. And surprise. it was only meant to be used. Yeah, surprise. <laughs> it was only meant to be used as a data point for a, um, a, a small group of individuals. And then it has escalated into this, what we now use and insurance uses as whether people are overweight, underweight, or now where they classify obesity in different tiers. And I tell my patients immediately that it is not something that I recommend monitoring because, um, you could have, you know, strong, you could have, you know, more bone density, you could have more fluid, you could have more blood flow, you could have um, all sorts of things that causes the sort of fat free mass number to be high um, and healthy. And your fat mass could technically be very low. But all we see is this BMI number and it, and it drives many of us crazy. It's why I have a body composition device in my practice to talk to patients and be like, actually, this explains why your cholesterol is normal and you don't have a risk of diabetes and your blood pressure is fine. Like this is your weight, but it doesn't really matter because overall metabolically you are very healthy and doing very well, if you will. So a lot of people get really excited when we get to have those conversations and prove to them like, Hey, I, this is why we don't have to worry about all these other risks that in long term. So it's pretty great. Yeah. Very cool. I know we can't talk about the specifics of your patients and doctor-patient confidentiality and all that, but I'm curious about the impact that you've seen this clinic have on the uh, on the community. Are there any generalities that you can tell me about uh, the type of change that you've seen in people's lives by coming to this clinic that is specifically for their needs? Yeah, it, you know, there's the there's a variety of patients we see all the time. I mean, no one is. Uh, I, I don't think I could classify every patient into sort of one tier, if you will. But we kind of see a variety of individuals for a variety of needs. And whether that's, um, you know, general primary care things like checking cholesterol and diabetes and um, do cancer screenings and preventive medicine things like annual physicals. But we, the need of the community has been really high. It's mostly like I was mentioning in the beginning, which was like how much individuals their patients or even myself sometimes don't feel comfortable talking to a provider or a specialist for instance um because they don't feel that they can be sort of themselves or um, um or present as themselves and one of the things I've, I've heard from a lot of our patients was like yeah they they don't feel they can, don't have to change the way they look when they come into the office because they're worried that if they dress a certain way or look a certain way that they might not receive the same adequate care and there's data backing all of those statements up um, which is disheartening, frankly, in healthcare. But um, we we really provide a space for our community specifically, but also anyone to come in and be you and talk to me openly. And whether that's about your concerns of chronic low back pain or your concern about potentially having a, se a sexually transmitted infection or you're concerned for, you know, blood pressure, whatever, or your mental health, whatever it might be, is I want our clinic wants to provide that space for people to come and talk about anything. Um, and obviously more medical related and those types of things being in healthcare, but <laughs> you know, you're not going to bring your car into me to come get done, but <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, I'm not going to be able to help you with an IT question, but it has, <laughs> you know, that's the reason we specialize in medicine. And one reason we specialize in HIV and gender affirming care and those things, is we want to offer those opportunities and again, give our patients that education that they frankly want. It's not that they, they deserve it. Sure. But everybody wants that is what I've recognized over the years is really people want the education and knowledge so they can make their own decisions. So um, I think finding that time, like I mentioned, is, is one of the key points is to offer an opportunity to explain things to people in a way they can understand. Um, and sometimes that means I change the way I express the way I, about certain pieces and that's fine. It's, we just want to make sure people understand so they can be informed to make the best decision possible for their health. You mentioned uh, having worked with a lot of patients with chronic illnesses, and I'm very curious to hear your approach. Um, what can you tell us from a practitioner's point of view about managing chronic illness? Yeah, you know, as a, as a nurse practitioner, we, we, we're we a little bit different than our sort of medical providers, which it's just mostly the education that we receive. Ours is very much holistic uh, in a manner, not that theirs is not. Um, we think of not just chronic disease management, but more about what is the root cause. So like if somebody is coming in and they have been on chronic blood pressure meds for years and years and years, like what is, what is happening? Why do they have high blood pressure is what I try to think about. Or is it because of stress? Is it because of uh, yeah high salt diet? Is it because they're not doing some cardiovascular exercise? Maybe they can't. And, and maybe why is that? So we kind of piecemeal some of those together in our conversation. We, we have some really, really good intake forms that kind of help um, stimulate those conversations as well. So the patient's sort of ready for those appointments. Um, and I always remind my patients that there's going to be moments that I might not know something specific about a chronic disease. Like, um, you know, I'm not a specialist in pulmonology for like COPD and those types of things. And I may need to, and, you know, rely on my, um, you know, colleagues and counterparts within pulmonology to assist and manage some of those pieces. But in primary care, we can also help route those individuals to get that adequate care. And that's one of the big roles in primary care is that if you don't know that information or you don't um, have those specialties, then where do patients go to get that care? Um, and so we're kind of like a navigator, if you will, sometimes. Um, you know, I, I specialize in obviously LGBT health and weight management and a lot of endocrinology disorders and those types of things. But I'm definitely not a specialist in things like neurology and, and migraine headaches and those types of pieces or um, you know, like autoimmune disorders, like, uh, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or lupus and things. And so I know how to start those processes and work with patients to maybe discover those issues or those diagnoses, but I might not be able to manage long-term. And so a lot of specialists will get people started and then they usually come back to me where we're helping navigate, whether it's lab work, uh, medication management, or just discussions about lifestyle sometimes. So we're kind of the jack of all trades, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm, my primary care is a nurse practitioner, and he's incredible. I this is the first time I've ever had a, a PCP who is a, a nurse and not an MD, and I've had mm -hmm. incredible experiences. And he's just always opening doors for me, and that that's the biggest difference is he's always looking for the next place to send me until we hit on the place that's been helping, which is incredible. Um, yeah, but my you know my old primary care back at the last clinic that I was at there was just like a limit of what was possible. And it just made me feel like I was undiagnosable and that I was never going to get help. Um, so just having someone in your corner who believes you 
and listens to you and and understands you, respects you, and is willing to keep fighting for you and keep opening doors. Like that is the the key, I think, in my experience of of finding of making progress with a chronic illness is having that person who will be you know your foundation for your care, doesn't know everything, is open with you about that. And can continue to help try to open doors for you and get you to the right person while being that person who is keeping an eye on your holistic health, your whole body. Because specialists often don't do that. It's just not a part of their practice to say, oh, well, there's something neurological happening here. You know, let's make sure that your mental health is good. Let's make sure that your heart is good. Um, you know, they, that's just not how it works, unfortunately. I, I think you really hit it on the head, Jesse. I mean, that is really the key is listening and, and navigating and assisting and trusting what your patient is telling you. And, and I, you know, I've found in my career that maybe some, you know, people will have those, those gut reactions, those maybe gut feelings that they're not quite under, can't sometimes express and listening in ways and asking questions or redirecting and those types of things really help us as providers, as a sort of a team approach and a member of their care is to, to say like you mentioned is, i might not know that but let me figure out how we can navigate this together or you know uh this isn't my specialty let me have you come to see this individual to assist us here um it's really a key piece to successful whether a diagnosis or chronic disease management or just assisting our patients in finding some of those that care is a big piece of the puzzle and you know in the last two years i've had a really sort of these moments where a patient is explaining to me certain symptoms in certain situations that sometimes we don't, right? not everybody has these like sort of key moments, but come to find out one of the individuals had ended up having thyroid cancer and they were in their thirties and it was not anything that we should have caught at that age based off certain symptoms. But I had this, my patient and I had this conversation. I thought, well, why don't let's just look into this a little bit differently. And then we found this and, they were able to have surgery and chemo and are doing great now. Um, and they, you know, it's a very scary diagnosis in your thirties and it's a really terrifying thing to say cancer, but it's also, they were so excited to finally have that. Oh my gosh, this was the cause or this is the problem or this is what we can do for treatment X, Y, Z. And, and I think that that is a piece that keeps driving myself as a, as a nurse practitioner and, and healthcare is to keep, giving people that space to listen or, or to express themselves or talk to me about certain things that they may not know how to, or it's been really rewarding. It's one reason I just keep staying in this field and, and why I feel I'll be there, be in this field for a very, very long time. Awesome. So, you know, looking to our, the world at large, you know, I know you work here in Seattle, very specific mm -hmm. community. Um, but the need that you are feeling does not only exist here in Seattle. So I, I don't know if this is a fair question to ask, but um, for people outside of our community who need this type of care, people who's, you know, who are finding pushback from their doctors due to their gender identity, sexual orientation, what can those people look for to try to find better care? Yeah, I, you know, I, one is that if they're really, if people are not comfortable in their provider or... Uh, maybe, like you said, not able to sort of have their gender expression, those types of things, is to, is to look, um, it doesn't mean elsewhere, but sometimes they have to educate their providers, and that was sometimes necessary in certain realms. Like, you know, I might not, sometimes I may forget to ask people a preferred pronoun, or I might forget to ask certain things, and it's not to me any, 
it's not going to be derogatory or anything like that. It's just that I may have something else on my mind that I want to ask them that, that day or something like that. And to look around, not just within their own community, but outside their community, sometimes to find resources, which is, I think, really important. There's a lot of organizations, whether it's this country or other, that can always help people find. And, and with the age now of telemedicine, there's a lot of new things that people can can learn and and perhaps get the best care possible is um, looking at outside opportunities versus um, feeling sort of pigeonholed to stay with like one organization, for instance, or uh, one maybe family medicine doctor their entire lives because their whole family season, whatever the circumstances might be. I think that there are um, there are other resources and opportunities to help those individuals in all aspects of life. It's sometimes just um, asking the right questions or uh, looking to find those those answers. And and sometimes we have to be vulnerable to put ourselves out there to say certain things or ask certain things, which can be hard, but sometimes very rewarding. Absolutely. Yeah, and you don't be afraid to fire your doctor and find a new one. Yeah, absolutely. And we as, we as providers understand, but we might, not everybody's going to be a perfect fit. Not every mental health person's a perfect fit with, counseling with each other right it's we are we understand that and we acknowledge that um you know it's you know those types of pieces i think are important to feel okay stating right like this isn't going to be a great fit sometimes we as providers have to say that to patients that this is not a great fit and we might you might be better off with xyz sometimes and it's not an easy conversation to have but i think it's important to have it absolutely wow troy you did an incredible job today i've learned a ton and you know these are just really important topics to talk about. And I think that, you know, educating people within the LGBT community who need these services is hugely important. But I think that educating people from without that community, uh, people who want to be allies and who want to understand what this community is living with on a day-to-day basis, what their needs are, how to show respect and empathy. Uh, so, you know, what a gift to, to be able to bring some of that and I really appreciate you spending your time with us today. Have we covered all the topics that you feel is something you'd want to share? Anything that you want to add? No, I think, you know, there's, there's always many topics within this, in, the, in healthcare and in the realm of LGBT health. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to discuss uh, and bring to the table some of my knowledge and expertise over the years. And um, I'm just grateful that People can hopefully hear some of these things and stories and situations and feel empowered to go and and have conversations either with loved ones, providers, whoever, about their health. It's it's a topic we sometimes um, don't acknowledge well enough in, in many situations. Totally. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Would you like me to, you know, tag you on Instagram and TikTok when I post up this podcast? Anything at all? Um, ab- um, absolutely. Um, I would love that. Well, Troy, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise. You did an amazing job today. What a, what a great podcast. I'm very excited to share this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. 
Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters-Schmidt, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncie, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at Patreon.com. Dot com slash major pain podcast.